Let's go to the Word of God this morning in Acts chapter 3. And um, I've entitled the message this morning, Crippled No More, as we look at the life of a man who's whose uh, entire existence was dramatically changed in a single encounter because of the work of God. I'd like to read it first in its entirety of the text, and, uh, and then we'll consider its application this morning to our lives. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the hand, he helped him up and instantly The man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you away from your wicked ways. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and It is such a pleasure and a delight to be here and to be able to fellowship like this, Lord. This is just a, this is a complete honor and treat for us to gather like this and to love each other and to encourage each other and to be transformed by your work in our lives. So we're asking God that you would work. And Holy Spirit, we know that you've inspired this text. 
uh, of the Bible. We know that you have preserved the text of the Bible. We know that you are the one that enlightens our eyes. You're our mentor, you're our tutor, you're our companion that leads us into a deeper revelation of Jesus and of the Father. And so we're asking that you would have your way this morning, both through my teaching and through our listening, and especially through our application. And so we want to say thank you in advance for what you're going to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. As we've been going through the book of Acts, uh, you'll recall that the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, some remarkable things happened, uh, not the least of which is that the people were filled with the Spirit of God. The result in Acts chapter 2.43 is that the people who are watching all of these events unfold were in awe and they were absolutely astonished. And it also says that the apostles were involved in very, uh, a variety of miracles and wondrous signs that were taking place. But, but Luke doesn't go into detail about what all these miracles are. But he does select one that's representative by telling us the story about this man who was born lame. Now, before we even get into the text and talk about it, what I want to tell you is that uh, it'd be very easy to teach a text on, on how to uh, be involved in he healing, physical healing. A lot of people might teach the text that way. I really don't think that this healing and its description by Luke is designed primarily to teach us how, you know, the five steps of, of physical healing. What he is really getting at is how a people who are crippled by sin can be delivered. Even crippled hopelessly in sin can be delivered. And we'll talk about that. But I want to kind of right out of the gate explain where I'm going because I believe that God's purpose for mankind, especially for believers, is that we are as whole as he wants us to be. I believe that God's design for us is that we're whole people, certainly blessed and standing in a, with a righteous standing before Christ that happens simply by faith. But after the fact, as we live out our lives, God's purpose for you and for me is that we would increasingly bear the image of God, which really, ultimately, we can put it in a phrase that says God wants us to be whole. He wants us to be complete and mature, not lacking anything. And so we're going to learn quite a few lessons as we go through this text this morning, and I pray that the outcome and result is that we're going to be people that are changed and that we leave this place with a new heart uh, for understanding, a new desire to stand, a new desire to live for the things of the kingdom of God. And it begins in verse 1 with Peter and John going to the temple at the time of prayer. Uh, they prayed three times a day. Uh, historically, the Jewish people. We find that in Psalm 55, verse 17. We find it in Daniel when he talks about three times a day, as was, was his custom, he went before the Lord in prayer. Um, and so we find Peter and John, as the early church was birthed in prayer, continue in this lifestyle of devotion to seeking God. And so they're on their way to the temple. And they happen to choose and select divine appointment, not happenstance, not coincidence. They select the beautiful gate to make their entrance. At the beautiful gate, there's a man who's been crippled from birth. And we know from, uh, from Acts chapter 4, which we'll study next week, verse 22, that this man had been crippled from birth and was now in his mid-40s. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he was at least 40 years old. This man had parked himself at the beautiful gate for a long period of time. Now, there's a little background I want to talk about for a moment because in Leviticus chapter 21, we're told that no person who is deformed or crippled in any way or lame can enter the temple courts. 
So in essence, this man for his entire life, and the lifespan at that time was about 45, 50 years old, so he's getting to the end of his life. For his entire life, he's been, he's been positioned just outside the temple of God, never able to have access, but always on the outside. Now the question is, why was he picking this particular spot? Well, we're told by Josephus that the beautiful gate was named beautiful because it was beautiful. Out of all the gates, it was the gate to go through um, because the, the gate's uh, double doors were 75 feet high. Uh, they were made of Corinthian brass, highly polished. In fact, Josephus says that it was far more beautiful than gold and silver and more valuable. I don't quite get that, but, uh, but the fact is, is that Corinthian brass was very valuable and it was very beautiful. And when it was highly polished as these gates were, it was the gate to go through. And so if you're a man that, that it makes your living, your vocation is begging, that's the gate to be at because there are people going through this gate three times a day at least for prayer. And so he positions himself right in front of this gate to beg. I think there's another reason why he positions himself here is because, because this is a beautiful gate, the beautiful people want to go through the beautiful gate. And oftentimes the beautiful people, whether they look that way or not, think they are. And there are a lot of times are the wealthier people that are going in like that. And so he wisely puts himself in the place where he's going to get the best return. So he's at this gate, beautiful, incredible gate. And the contrast is dramatic as you see this gnarled, folded in man, all crippled, una unable to walk or to, uh, to earn a living on his own. And so, uh, you know, this guy is crippled, but he's not stupid. And he has been here so long that most of the people aren't old enough to ever remember a time when this man wasn't there. Now, what's interesting about this is that <clears throat> the question arises is that why wasn't this man healed before this? Because remember, Jesus, his ministry was three, three years, three and a half years, but he, but he was alive before that for 30 years, and he went to the temple regularly. And so Jesus must have been in this temple probably thousands and thousands of times and probably at least hundreds, if not more, going through this particular gate into the temple of God during his earthly ministry. And the question is, why didn't he heal this man before now? Why didn't Jesus do it? Well, it was interesting. It came up as a topic of our uh, Bible college class as we're going through a New Testament survey. And one of the people in the class raised their hand and said, I think Jesus healed because I was asking, what do you think the motivation and the purpose was for healing in the New Testament? And uh, one woman suggested that it was compassion that was the primary driving factor of healing. But the problem with, with believing it's compassion is that Jesus didn't heal everybody. So if it's compassion that drove him, we would have to conclude that Jesus wasn't always compassionate because he walked past many of these people over and over and over and didn't heal them. Well, we know that that's not the case. Jesus is compassionate. So there must be another reason why selectively at different times Jesus chose to either heal or not to heal. And let me share with you from Scripture the purpose of these wonders or these gifts of healing uh, that the Bible lays out. Number one purpose for healing is to authenticate the deity and the messiahship of Jesus Christ. We find that in Acts chapter 2 that we studied a few weeks ago, that Jesus Christ was accredited by God with signs and miracles and wonders to identify him as the Messiah. The second reason is to confirm and affirm the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 2. God testified to the gospel by signs and wonders and miracles. The third reason is to attest the ambassadorship of his disciples. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with Paul 
the things that Mark an Apostle Paul says are signs and wonders and miracles. So these are the primary reasons for healing. And yet Jesus also tells us, the scriptures tell us in James chapter five, that if anyone is sick, he should go or she should go to the elders of the church and they will anoint them with oil and pray over them and that the prayer of a righteous man will make that sick person well or whole. But we also know that, that though the scripture teaches that, not everyone is healed when we pray. We have an example of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 where he prayed for his thorn in the flesh to be removed. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that was hindering him in some way that he wanted to get rid of that he thought was impeding the work of ministry. And we remember what God said, I'm not gonna take it away because my power is perfected in weakness. And then we have Epaphrodites in, uh, in Philippians chapter two that Paul prayed for and wasn't immediately healed. And so we obey the scriptures that says pray for the sick and pray that they'd be raised up. And then we leave it up to God what he wants to do. But the healings in the New Testament in particular, and this one uh, specifically, has a very specific strategy and purpose for which God allowed this man on this particular day to be healed. And so Peter sees this man, and it says that he looked at him. And actually, it's, uh, it's a very weak phrase in the English because in the Greek, it means he fastened his eyes on him. You know, he just gazed intently at this guy. Now, this is pretty interesting because if you've been to a third world country and you've had people try to beg from you, what do you normally do? Well, you just, you know, you just try to look straight ahead and you keep going, you know, because there's so many. If you started giving money, you would immediately have a crowd and you might as well just uh, pull out your checkbook and, and be destitute. Uh, and so sometimes, even as Christians, when we get in a situation like that, you go on the mission field and, and you're going through the orientation for the mission training and everything, and they'll tell you, don't give money to beggars because if you do, we're just gonna get bombarded here. And, um, and so... What most people do, whether you're in New York, we don't really have it happening here too much, but New York or in a big city or in a third world country, you just learn to kind of pretend those people aren't there. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that that's how most people respond. It's kind of like, if I don't see them, they can't see me, I'm not responsible. I think another reason that we avert our eyes in situations like that is there's a certain sense of helplessness. What, what can we possibly do for this person? All crippled up, gnarled up, and we have this sense of, this is way over my head. I, this is beyond me. And so rather than trying to do something, we have a, a tendency to not want to do anything. But here Peter does something that probably shocked this guy, is that he, he fastened his eyes on this man. Now this is the guy that's trying to get other people's eye contact. Please, 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 as they go by, you see. But everybody turns their eyes. But Peter just looks at the guy, you know, and stares at him. The guy gets uncomfortable, so much so that Peter says, has to say, look at me. Here's a man that spent his whole life learning the technique of looking at people to incite pity and help, and now he's averting his eyes because he's never been stared at like that before. Well, Peter knew that something was happening. It reminds me in, um, of, uh, of Paul in Acts chapter 14. He's dealing with almost the very same situation, the healing of a, of a lame man. And it says in that text that Paul looked at the man and recognized the man had faith to be healed. And because of that, Paul pronounced healing and the man was healed. And though it doesn't say that in the text, I think that's what was happening. That, that in those brief seconds, what was transpiring is a recognition by Peter 
that God had divinely appointed this man and Peter at that time to meet this man and that Peter looked in the eyes of this man and he saw something and he was experiencing something simultaneously by the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit to know that this was a divine appointment. I'm telling you, I, if I could live in a moment like that every second of my life, I'd be thrilled. And I'm learning how to experience walking in the Spirit. I'm learning how to be led by the Spirit. I'm, I'm convinced, and if you've been in our church any length of time, you know how often I talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but I'm convinced that God has called us to live lives like this, where we are led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and we keep in step with the Spirit in such a way that we know every moment, every conversation matters because it's a divine appointment from God that based on Ephesians 2.10, he's established before the creation of the world for us to walk in. That is such an exciting life to live. I never know what's going to happen. I like that. I didn't used to like that. I'm a very organized person. I want to know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and a month in advance if possible. <laughs> but to be honest with you, that's a really boring Christian life. And the life that I'm learning how to live and that Peter is modeling here and the life that God is calling us to live is so much more exciting if we simply will live a life led by the Holy Spirit of God. So it's not God the Father, God the Son, and the other guy. But we have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit based on the teaching in, in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2 and also 2 Corinthians 13, 14 that says that we're supposed to have koinonia. This communion, this fellowship, this communication, this, this partnership and friendship with the Holy Spirit of God. And so Peter is experiencing that and he comes up to this man and he fastens his eyes on him and he's not afraid, he's not concerned, he's not averting his eyes because he knows that God wants to give this man something. And so he tells the man, I don't have any money. Silver and gold have I none. Why? Well, because Jesus Christ in, in his earthly ministry when he sent the disciples out said, don't, don't worry about silver and gold. A man is worthy of his hire. Trust me. So he didn't have all the money. So he told the guy, I don't have that, but what I do have, I want to give to you. And Jesus in the gospels had told the disciples that he was commissioning them to go out and preach the gospel, to heal the lame, to raise up the dead, to give sight to the blind. And he gave them all these instructions. And then he said at the end, freely you have received, freely give. And so Peter says, I don't have what you want, but I'm going to give you what you need. And it's what Jesus Christ had given him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. How many of you would be willing to do something like that? Go down to, to Wilcox long-term care or Mahi Lona long-term care with somebody all completely gnarled up and you find out they've been that way from birth and they're 50 years old. I'm not saying we should do that. This was led by God. It was God's timing. If it had been me and I was, and I was emboldened to, to preach to this guy and to teach him and to encourage him and to say that God wanted to do something in his life, I'd be saying, okay, can you wiggle your toes? You know, can you give me your right foot? Can, let's pray. Let's see if we can get that ankle going, you know? And if he could do that, oh, praise God, you know, he's not, you know, at least he's made some progress. And then I'd say, okay, let's get you in physical therapy, you know, and roll you on that ball and, you know, we'll do the rubber band stretching and everything. And maybe in a few years, you'll be... But see, Peter doesn't do that. He tells the guy, walk. I mean, the guy had never even stumbled. The guy had never even as a toddler known how to walk and fall and walk and fall and walk and fall until he figured it out. This is a guy that had absolutely no practice, no experience, no knowledge except what he'd seen other people do. 
And Peter has the boldness to tell this guy not only to get up, but to walk. Then Peter took him by the hand and it said at that moment, something happened. Find that interesting. I'm not gonna talk about it much, but I just find it interesting that it wasn't when he commanded him to walk, but was when he reached out his hand. Now, when Paul told the guy to walk, he didn't reach out his hand, the guy just walked. So there's no formula here, but I just find it interesting that Peter took him by the hand and it's, uh, it's been said that it was God's power that healed him, but it was Peter's hand that reached out to this man. And, and the, the simple lesson here for us is that God's power is always the thing that we can deliver. That's the only thing we have to offer. But it's through our hands and feet and heart that God touches people. And so right now you've got, I'm gonna tell you right now, there's all kinds of crippled people in your lives. Not talking about physically, but I'm talking about emotionally. I'm talking about spiritually. I'm talking about in a thousand and one different ways with their finances, with their marriage, with their child rearing, with their relationships with other people, with their confusion about life, with pain that's happened to them, uh, abuse that's taken place in their childhood, uh, terrible, terrible things that have happened to people in life. And essentially, they, they come in, they look beautiful, they look fine and everything, but there's this crippling uh, uh, experience that they've been through that still, in a sense, controls them and prevents them from walking or from leaping or jumping or praising God. And so they have this, this great need and, and God is saying, I think, through this text is that God's power is what enables healing to take place, but he uses the hands of men and women to accomplish it. And you are those hands, you are those feet, you are the, the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And so Peter was willing to take that role and he reached out to this man and the, and the text tells us that this crippled man immediately jumped to his feet. Now, I just find this very interesting. In, in John chapter five, we have an account of Jesus at the pool of Siloam. And at that pool, if you remember this account, there's a, a pool that all the invalids and cripples and the blind and the lame and the leprous and all these people would go to and they'd lay around this, this, uh, this, this pool that was at the portico uh, not too far from the temple. And, it's, and so, the, so the, uh, the teaching goes that there, was an, there were angels that would come down on occasion and their wings would stir up the water and the first person in the water after these angels stirred up the, the water, uh, the first person in the water would be healed. And Jesus met a man there during his, during his ministry who had been lame for 38 years, presumably for his whole, whole life. And Jesus came up to the man and said something extremely interesting, something I, I think is just actually more insightful than anything I can think of today, but also very risky to say. What did he say? Okay, so yeah, he said to, to this guy, do you want to be well? I'm thinking, if I was a guy, what are, you, are you kidding? Look at me. What you, what you, I, it might be even insulting. So why did Jesus ask the question? Well, he asked the question because evidently not everyone wants to be well. That seems a bit shocking, doesn't it? Why wouldn't people want to be well? Well, because if you're well, you have to be responsible. If you're whole, you have to work. You have to take up your part. You have to carry your load. There's a certain sense of, of freedom in not being responsible. We have lots of people like that on this island. We have lots of people that just show up and get off the plane and immediately get their 400 bucks of food stamps and they just travel all around the world like that and go from place to place. And 
They talk about their past and, gee, I came from this really hard life and I was abused when I was young and no, ha haven't really had any opportunities. And, and, and on and on it goes, all the reasons why they can't be responsible, why they, why they don't really want to be whole. There's a, there's a joke about a guy, uh, three guys that were out fishing and, uh, and one guy had bad eyesight, another guy had a bad back and another guy had some debilitating uh, disease that, he, that just brought him a lot of fatigue. And they were out fishing and all of a sudden they're, they're fishing and all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water and Jesus walks right up to him, gets in the boat and these guys, these fishing guys are just completely blown away, you know? Jesus, that's you and it must be you and yes, it's me. And, and, uh, and, and he's, Jesus said, well, you know, I'd really like to, to bless you guys in some way. And one guy says, well, I, I can't see. And so Jesus says, well, would you like to be healed? And the guy said, yes. And so he reaches out his hand and puts his hand on the man's eyes and he's immediately healed. The guy just goes ballistic, you know? The guy with a back problem thinks, whoa, maybe Jesus can do something with my back. And Jesus said, absolutely. So he puts his hand on his back and speaks a couple of words and blessing him. And the, the guy's immediately healed. And the third guy said, get away from me. I'm on disability. The fact is, is that not everyone wants to be whole. And there's an agenda sometimes behind that, a reason to not get whole. So this is what I'm thinking in my kind of twisted, warped mind. And this isn't the Bible, by the way. This is me. Uh, just speculating. What could have happened in that brief moment when, when Peter said, get up and walk, and he felt strength come to his legs, he was about to burn the bridge of the only vocation he'd ever known. And he's 40 plus, almost at the end of his life. Can you imagine what that would be like? All of a sudden, I'm going to have to get a job. I'm going to have to work. I'm going to have to support myself. This isn't a great life, but it's a life I know. It's a life that's fairly simple for him. It's predictable. Every morning, his friends or family takes him to the temple gate. He's got this place scoped out. It's his spot, you know? It's nobody else's spot. It's my spot. If I'm healed, if I get up, if I even try to get up and succeed, my life is forever going to change. And now I'm going to be responsible to not only take care of myself, but I can't moan and complain about anything anymore because now I'm whole. I think that, to be honest with you, I think sometimes, I'm going to say we, I think sometimes we're afraid to be whole because of the responsibility that comes with being whole. Because when we're not completely whole, we can kind of blame our failure on our lack of wholeness. You know, I think a lot of Christians, even Christians are afraid to step out for God because they're afraid they might fail. And rather than fail, they just stay weak because as long as they're weak, no one expects anything of them. And so a lot of Christians in the church today just remain like perpetually weak. They're like on life support. They're there, they show up, they're a part of things, but they never have the power or strength to contribute because they keep themselves in this kind of weakened condition on a perpetual basis because if they actually got strong in their walk with God, they would have to step out and they would have to begin helping others and begin serving and begin leading and begin discipling and begin taking a stand for Christ. So you're beginning to get the idea that being crippled isn't simply a physical problem. And this man at that moment had this incredible decision to make. And it, you know, I'm speculating because he might not have even thought any of these things. But I'm just speculating that it could have been a real moment of decision for him to realize that by standing up, his life was going to radically change and he was going to have to step up to the plate. Well, he does. He jumps up. 
And he goes into the temple with Peter and John. Presumably for the first time in his life, this man is allowed access to the presence of God in the temple. And he was walking and jumping and praising God. I mean, this guy wasn't holding back. He didn't have a reputation to worry about anyway. He was a cripple. He was a beggar. That's about as low as you can get in that culture at that time. And so he wasn't worried about, you know, uh, appearances or, or being uh, seen in a particular way by the people. He was so excited and delighted to be made whole that the Bible said he was jumping and leaping and praising God. And it's all in the present participle tense in the Greek, which means that he continued to do it repeatedly over and over and over. You remember when you first learned to ride a bike for the first time? I remember, uh, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I must have been like four or five years old and I had a, a Stingray. Anybody remember Stingrays with a banana seat? Oh, it was a hot bike. And I got it on Christmas. And, uh, and we, for, for, I won't go into the details, but we opened presents really late. And it was like, you know, like seven o'clock at night when I finally got to open and bike was hidden in the garage. And I, a Stingray with a banana seat. You know, I just, I just went ballistic, you know. And I wanted, I'd never really learned how to ride uh, so I went out to learn, and, uh, and I learned to ride it. My sister pushed me, and I, and I learned to ride it in, in probably about 15 or 20 minutes because I'd ridden some other kids' bikes, tried on training wheels, but this was my first bike without training wheels. And I got on that bike, and what did I want to do? It was like nighttime, and I'm like, I rode until like 9 and 10 at night on the sidewalk right in front of my house, backwards and forwards, and it was, it was icy. It was, a, you know, uh, there was a kind of, a, it was like black ice. But I didn't care. I fell down over and over just because of the ice, but I wanted to ride because why? Because I was so excited. I was riding for like the first time on my own. This man, for the first time in his life, is walking, and he's not only walking, but to give us an idea of how complete and instantaneous his healing was, he was jumping and leaping. This guy had never even been vertical before. This guy couldn't even look a man or a woman in the eyes before. This man was always looking up, always dependent, always needy, always crying for help. And for the first time in his life, he was able to stand up. And man, this guy was jazzed. He was really excited, which was really a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 6. Because in that text, it says that when the Messiah comes, he will make the lame to leap like deer and the mute tongue to shout for joy. And so we see another evidence. And by the way, it's no mistake that Dr. Luke chose this text and this incident because one of the prophecies about Christ is that he would heal the lame who had been born lame from birth. And at that time, there were a few things that had never been done before. A dead man had never been raised from the dead. A leper had never been cleansed of their leprosy. And a lame man born from birth had never been made whole. And Jesus did all three of those things. And now the disciples, as his followers, are doing the same. Well, the crowd goes wild in verses 9 through 11. They recognize this guy as the temple beggar, even though they tried to ignore him for years. They knew who this guy was. And so they realized that something tremendous had happened. They were filled with wonder and amazement. And the text says, text says that this crowd came running to, the, uh, to Solomon's por uh, uh, colonnade, which was on the eastern end of the temple outer court. This is a place that Jesus often taught, by the way. And Peter recognizes immediately that these people are like into major hero worship. They are looking at Peter in such a way that he immediately recognizes that they have mistaken the miracle of God for somehow for Peter or John's godliness or personal power. And so he immediately wants to quell that. The same thing happened to Paul in Iconium in, in chapter 14 of Acts when he healed another crippled man. If you remember, the people wanted to, to worship him 
and to uh, assign him names of Zeus and, uh, and to worship him as, as a god. And it, it, he said it was just everything that we could do to keep these people from worshiping us. But what the people recognized is that something divine was taking place. They recognized that and they saw it. And it would have been a great temptation for Peter. This is another moment that I, I want to just take a look at for a second, just a fraction of a second here that, that Peter might have been tempted. I'm not saying he was, but I'm just saying that that was a moment where Peter could have kind of gloried in this praise and adulation. He could have signed autographs. He could have thought, my gosh, I need a booking agent. You know, he could have taken an offering. He could have said, if you'd like to see more of the same, first thousand bucks on the table, another healing. And he would have gotten it. People would have given anything and everything they had to be healed. He could have been a rich man in a matter of hours in that temple if he wanted to be. But he knew it wasn't his power. And so he began to do what the, the miracles are really designed to do, which is to draw attention and to provide a platform for the teaching and preaching of the gospel in such a way that people's attention is arrested and their hearts are open because they have just seen the finger of God at work. And so Peter begins to preach, but not the kind of sermon I would have preached. If it had been me, I might have preached a sermon about the power of God to change life. I would have tied in all the things that God can do, and I'm going to do that at the end of this message, actually. But I would have maybe started with a, with a little bit of the soft touch, you know, about what God can do in your life and how God can make your, uh, restore your life and take away your crippledness, too, and how God can, uh, can uh, give you a plan. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Forgive all your sins, lift all your guilt. But that's not how Peter starts out. Listen to what he says in verse 13 through 15, and I'm summarizing. He starts blasting them. He says, you handed him over to be killed. The same one in whose name this man was healed, you killed him. You disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the holy and the righteous one, which were very distinct Hebrew phrases that had to do with the coming Messiah. He was blasting him. You were so low. You were so sinful. You were so wicked and depraved that you asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be released that Jesus might be sent to the cross. And this is the last one, just blows me away. You killed, you killed, you are personally responsible for killing the author of life. Man. When was the last time you went to an evangelistic crusade and you heard somebody teaching like that? You know, Ray Comfort, who is a, a really great evangelist and writer, has been trying to teach the church for years that people can never appreciate the good news of Jesus Christ until they know the bad news. And oftentimes, we don't give people the bad news. We don't confront them with their sin. We're afraid to. We don't want to offend. We don't want to bend people the wrong way. We don't want to, uh, you know, we don't want to get in their face. And by the way, I'm not saying that you should go out today and just blast people. But what I am saying is that people need to really understand that they are hopelessly lost, that if they've broken even one of the Ten Commandments, they are guilty of all the commandments and all of the scriptures, which is like 613 laws in the Old Testament, but certainly the Ten that God gave. That serves a very important purpose. Why? Because the reality is that most of us don't think we're all that bad. Even the bad people don't think they're that bad. 
I mean, you can talk to guys that are in prison and have killed people, and they said, well, it was just I was on drugs. I'm really not that bad a person. I'm a nice guy. I'm a loving family man. I mean, if you ever hear, if you've ever been in a prison case or watch one on TV, the guy's murdered and done terrible, heinous things, and his family get up and his friends get up and say, he's such a nice man. He really serves the community. He does this, he does that. It's like, hey, this guy's a murderer. But in their own eyes, we all seem to be better than we are. So Peter, Peter comes in. He recognizes that, and he just blasts them. But I believe as he watched the audience, he knew that this message was striking home and that their hearts had been pierced with conviction because he also encourages them and says that Jesus was raised from the dead by God and that this man who they're looking at, this crippled man, was restored by faith in the name of Christ. Now, this whole thing of, of, um, of conviction is so important. The Holy Spirit says that one of his jobs in Scripture is to bring conviction on the world for sin and, and judgment. That these are things that the Holy Spirit has been given to the, to the world for, is to convict us. We all had to come to a place of conviction over our need and our, and our terrible sin to finally recognize that we needed a Savior in the first place. So we've got to come low before we can be raised up. And so Peter preaches this message, and part of this, this conviction uh, and this kind of preaching always results in one of two responses. It's either a wholehearted recognition that we have failed and that we are miserable and that we are crippled and hopeless apart from Christ, or we harden our heart to the message. But if we want to respond, we have to repent and ask for forgiveness and then we need to continue to move on. So either it's going to be we're going to repent and, and uh, ask for forgiveness or we're going to feel guilt and shame and carry that with us. And that's very powerful. God's purpose for uh, conviction is to bring repentance. But for those believers that get convicted, and this is really a dangerous thing, and I wasn't planning on talking about this, but Holy Spirit's leading, so I'm going to mention it briefly here. It's a very dangerous thing to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and ignore it. Because what results is guilt. That's always a result of unrepented sin when conviction comes. And so when the conviction comes and we don't repent, guilt occurs. And then what happens is this distancing between ourselves and God. And the guilt increases and Satan works that angle over and over and over until a, a person who's really a wonderful believer at one time is now not even walking with God because they've been driven away from the Lord by guilt, but not really by guilt but by a failure to repent. 2 Corinthians 7 says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, but worldly sorrow brings death. Well, after Peter blasted them and recognized that their hearts had been pierced, he comforted them. And he said, in essence, I, I know that you did this in ignorance. He acknowledged their ignorance. When Paul was writing in 1 Timothy, he said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Peter says, I know that you did these things. You killed the author of life in ignorance and your leaders did as well. Now, it's interesting because the question then becomes, does ignorance absolve a person of responsibility? And the answer is no. In Leviticus chapter 4, verses 26, 27 and on, the Bible says that if a person commits a sin unintentionally, he's guilty. She's guilty. And when that person becomes aware of that sin, they have to make sacrifice for that sin. In other words, they have to make atonement for it. They need to ask for forgiveness. They need to repent. They need to make restitution. 
Why is this important? Well, because sometimes I've heard people say that, uh, well, I didn't mean to sin, so I, it wasn't sin. If I didn't mean to, it's not sin. And, and the holiness, holiness movement and the idea of sinless perfection and even this church that's on the island that, that uh, caused a little scene here a number of weeks back, uh, they base their theology on this concept. They redefine sin. They have to. And their, their redefinition of sin says that sin is only sin if I willfully intend to sin premeditatively. But if I accidentally sin or if I get angry and sin, or if I don't mean to sin, or if I sin against someone and I didn't know I was doing it, I'm not responsible. That's the only way that you can live a sinless life. And even then you can't do it because eventually you're going to find that you premeditate sin. But, but, but the, uh, the, the sinless perfection movement is grounded on this whole concept that sin is only sin is, is if you actually intended to sin. But Leviticus and other places in the Bible make it absolutely abundantly clear that even unintentional sin causes a person to be guilty. So even though the people are being told by Peter that he realizes they did it in ignorance, he's not saying, oh, you know, it was just a mistake and don't worry about it. Let's move on in the right direction now. No, he says that they need to do something. He says they need to repent. Um, but before he does that, he reminds them of the sovereignty of God because these people are all of a sudden, if they're really getting this message, which I believe many of them were, they were crushed. They were devastated. You know, they're, they're going to be saying, in essence, what, what do we need to do? You know, what, what do we, how do we extricate ourselves from this, from this terrible mess? And, and Peter brings in a message of the sovereignty of God. And in essence, he says, you guys meant it for evil. And I'm quoting from, uh, from Genesis 50, 20, where uh, Joseph with his brothers, they, they had, you know, kidnapped him and sent him off and sold him and all that. And the brothers were finally reunited after years. And, and Joseph says this most magnificent, gracious statement. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. And in essence, that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. The, the Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans, us, we all meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the saving of many lives, that Christ would die on the cross and suffer, that sins might be forgiven. The same thing happens for us, by the way, as believers, Romans 8, 28. It's the same principle, the sovereignty of God. All things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Why does that matter? Well, I'll tell you why it matters, because all of our lives get goofed up. All of our lives are, are infiltrated by pain and sorrow and sadness and conflict and loss. And we can either look at that and say, God, how could you let this happen to me? Or we can say, I trust the power and the sovereign hand of God to accomplish his purposes. Not what I want, but his will, may that be accomplished. And in essence, that's what Peter is telling the people. So he's, he's not absolving them, but he's saying, you know what, what you really meant for evil, even though you're still guilty and still culpable for this, God has brought about a wonderful salvation through it. And then he tells them what they need to do as a result. He said, for your part, you need to repent and you need to turn to God. Repent in the Greek means to have a change of mind. To turn means to convert. That's where we get our English word con to convert from is, is the idea of, of, of when a person is born again, they're converting to Christ. So they need to repent, have a change of mind. They need to convert uh, to Christ. And that involves acknowledging that we were going in the wrong direction and then make a determination by the power of God to go in the right direction, which is toward, toward God. And this has to do with this whole issue that I want to just bring to your attention again is that I truly believe that God wants every man and woman here to, in here to be whole. 
He wants you to bear the likeness of Jesus. He wants you whole in your family life. He wants you whole in your business dealings. He wants you whole in your extended family. He wants you whole in your marriage. He wants you whole in your family, uh, family life and your child rearing and, and being a, a son or daughter with your parents. He wants you whole in this community. He wants to make people whole. And I would suggest to you, his question to us today is, do you want to be well? Or is there something in your life that you have a vested interest in not being completely well? Because if you were actually completely well, you'd have to step up. You'd have to get up. You'd have to walk. It's a little scary. You know, the scariest thing actually for me is what I don't know about myself. There are inevitably things about my life right now that I can't see because I'm so blind to them. But you all see, and you're like, oh, I could tell you, you know, well, you can tell me afterwards. <laughs> but there are things in my life that I don't yet see in my life that are not whole. Those are the things that worry me the most. The ones I see, I can respond to God with, but the ones I can't see, I don't even know what to do. And that's where I just have to trust God for his timing. Like the, 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 this lame man being passed over, over and over. God has passed over things in my life, over and over. He might have tried to communicate it to me, but I wasn't ready or I didn't get it. But there's gonna be a time where God and his faithfulness is gonna communicate certain th things to me that I haven't yet seen. And he's gonna say, do you wanna be well? And every day I have to get up and I have to say, God, I wanna be well. I wanna be whole. You know, I want to stand. I want to walk in the things of the kingdom. I want to walk a, a life that's worthy of the life that Christ gave, that I might be whole. And so I would really challenge you this morning is that do you want to be whole? Wholeness is going to mean a change of life. Wholeness is going to mean stepping up. Wholeness is going to mean taking responsibility and, and the real truth is, is that it took me a long time in ministry to figure this out in trying to help people, is not everyone wants to be whole. People have these certain ceilings where it's like, that's whole enough. Thank you very much. I'm whole enough. Have you ever tried to help somebody that was whole enough? What a trial and a labor. And you just over and over rescuing, rescuing, rescuing. Why? Because they don't want to be completely whole. They're happy at that level. You know, it's the, the equivalent is the man that's this uh, lame man, you know, being satisfied with copper coins and, and living a crippled life and just being a beggar and being kind of rejected by people, no access to the temple of God, all those things. But at least he knows it. At least he's good at it. At least he knows the parameters. And he could have easily said, no, thank you very much. <laughs> I got a good thing going here. And that's a challenge that I face, quite honestly is that I have to get up on a daily basis as I study the Bible and I have to say, God, I am here this morning as your pupil. You are the teacher and I want to be made whole. And I know that's going to mean change for me right from the get-go. I know I'm going to have to step up in areas that I'm uncomfortable with. I know that I'm going to have to do things that, I, that are frightening, that, that are kind of like these major leaps of faith where I'm just like, I don't know if there's going to be ground under me when I step out. But I'm telling you, there's no better life to live than that because all of a sudden you, you adventure into the miraculous and you adventure into the Christian life that God has called us to. I think far too many Christians have been satisfied by saying, that's whole enough for me. Thank you very much. And the result is, is they live kind of boring Christian lives. They're faithful. They read their Bibles. They teach Sunday school. They show up. They do what they're supposed to do. But the adventure is completely missing because they basically told God, that's far enough. And I believe that when Jesus met that man at, at the pool of Siloam and the man said, no, I, I don't want to be healed, I think Jesus would say, okay, 
and he would have moved on. And I think it's possible that there are people, maybe even here, maybe even me, where knowingly or unknowingly, we've said, I'm whole enough, thank you very much, and that's the reason I'm not more whole than I am. And I want to challenge you today to, to really consider allowing God to make you whole. And part of that is repenting and turning to God. Now, there are three things, and I, and I think I'm going to end with this because I want to pray, and so I won't get to the entirety of the text this morning, but there are three benefits of, of repenting of sin and becoming whole. One of the benefits is that your sins will be wiped out. In the, in, if you've got a King James Bible, it says blotted out. Blotted out because in, um, in those times that Jesus lived, they had no acid in the ink. Acid is what etches the paper. So we have acid in our modern day ink. So when you write, it not only uh, lays down the color, but it also etches the paper so that the ink can cling to the paper and to last. That's where you get permanent ink is because it's got acid in it. And, uh, but at that time, they had no acid. So to blot out something you wrote was a very simple matter of just kind of having a damp rag or something and you wipe it off and it's, it's gone. And that's what Jesus says happens to somebody whose life is broken and crippled who comes to him and repents is that God will blot out all your transgressions. The second thing that happens is that times of refreshing will come from the Lord. When I think of this, I think about working really hard and I think about... Um, you know, getting dirty and dusty and doing outside, you know, some, some project and just working hard like a dog all day and not eating and not drinking very much. And at the end of the day, jumping in the car and going down to Lydgate and putting my swimsuit on and diving into the water. That's what I think of when I think of refreshment. You know, if you've, if you've kind of put a ceiling on what God wants to do in your life in some area and you've kind of told him that's as whole as I want to be, You'll never know how refreshing the living water of Christ is until you remove the, the barriers and you really repent. And uh, it's, it's an incredible thing. And we've all experienced it ourselves. But we've also seen it in other people. When there's this incredible, genuine repentance, there's this incredible restoration and this life and joy. And there's this refreshment that just, that just gets poured into a person's life. And they're like new people. That's what the Bible says. Uh, new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And so all of this new life pours in for the person that truly repents. On the other hand, have you ever seen somebody that, that kind of half-hearted repented? It's like, Lord, I'm, I know I did wrong, but... And you just never see the, the refreshment come to them. And it may be that some of you are struggling in some area today and, and you've been crippled by sin and you're struggling. And as I'm teaching this, you're connecting with the message because you realize that that's exactly what I've done. I've said... I'm whole enough, thank you very much. It might be in how you treat your spouse, it might be in your attitudes, you might have used phrases oftentimes like that's just the way I am, I'm this culture, that culture, we're hot-blooded, you know. I mean, you can say it however you want to, but the reality is, is that when we speak like that, we've said, I'm whole enough, thank you very much. And the result is, is that you aren't experiencing the refreshment of an intimate, completely sold-out walk for Christ. You know, Paul put it this way in, in, um, in Romans 12, he said, in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that he went to the cross and suffered and died for our sins, in view of the fact that he did that and gave himself while we were still sinners, while we were still shaking our fist at him, while we were still living our own lives, while we were still crippled and mangled and gnarled, Christ died for us. And Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer your restored bodies, your no longer crippled bodies, as living sacrifices to God. 
Why does he say that? Because if you have a crippled life and all of a sudden have it back, you could very easily spoil it on yourself and just use it for your own ends. But Paul says, when God gives you your life back, give your life back to him and then live the rest of your life for his glory. So he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your, this is your act of worship, your appropriate act of worship to God. I have more to share with you, but let me just close with a, with a couple of, of thoughts. This story is really not about healing, not in the physical sense anyway, despite the fact that it was a miraculous event. It certainly has its purpose. But the thing that I want to share with you is that there are a lot of parallels between this lame man's life and ours. This man was crippled from birth, and we were born in the crippling condition of sin. This man was powerless before his disability, and we're powerless before our sinful nature apart from Christ. This man was outside the temple, oh, so close, but always outside. And without a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are outside the kingdom of God. This man was willing to settle for money. And so many Christians even are willing to settle for material blessings over the eternal work of God. This man was not the initiator, it was Peter. Peter was the one that walked to him. In the same way, we weren't the initiator in our relationship with God. God sent his son while we were sinners. And he took on human flesh and came to us. This man was lifted up by Peter. And Jesus Christ was lifted up on a cross and he entreats any man or woman that wants to come into a relationship with him with his arms open wide and says, come unto me. The man was healed in the name of Jesus and we're healed by faith in the name of Jesus. This man was made whole instantaneously. And when we come to Christ, our sins are forgiven instantaneously. And the Bible says we now have a right standing with God Almighty. And God the Father, no matter what you've done or what performance level you think you've achieved in your Christian life, God sees you as finished and complete in Christ. And this man responded by having joy and worshiping God. And that's our response as well. I want to ask you again. Are you as whole as God wants you to be? And if you're not, do you want to be made whole? That's the question. Are you willing to step out? If I could give you any encouragement today, it would be this. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and rise up and walk a life that's worthy of the God who sent his son to die for you on the cross, who empowers you by his spirit. My encouragement is to stand and to walk and for those of you that are a little more eager, go ahead and jump and leap if you like. But we need to stand up to the plate. Enough excuses, enough telling God, that's enough, thank you very much. I'm challenging you to come from whatever state you are in, maybe you're badly crippled, maybe you're only partially crippled, maybe it's just your pinky that's left that needs work. But whatever it is, from a spiritual standpoint, I'm encouraging you to allow God to have free reign and to answer his question, do you want to be whole with a resounding yes? Father, we thank you for our time this morning and uh, it's just been a blessing to be together and I kind of can't wait for the service to be over just to fellowship and pray and enjoy each other's company too. But this has been a total delight. And um, I just want to give people an opportunity to respond. If there's anyone here that's never received Christ and maybe as you're hearing this message this morning, it's... Um, Maybe you've never heard teaching like this, and uh, maybe you have. Maybe you've drifted away from God.
But if, if you want a relationship with God and you find yourself like this crippled man sitting outside, you know, taking leftovers from other people and not really entering in and you would like to have a relationship with God, I just want you to raise your hand where you are because I'd like to pray for you. Is there anyone here, and I know most of you, but is there anyone here that doesn't know Christ that would like to receive him this morning? Okay. I'm trusting all of us know the Lord. For the rest of us, I want to give you an opportunity to simply respond. And I don't even want to put scenarios out there. I just want to say if the Holy Spirit's ministered to you in some way and you want to say yes to God in some aspect of what you know you need to do or repentance or change or letting God know that you're removing the, the glass ceiling from, from what you're willing to do, from the life you want to experience, I just want you to stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. I'm standing. I'm asking him to help me with the things I don't even know about myself, much less the ones that I do. But if you want to, uh, to just surrender yourself to God and say, you know, I blame my personality. I blame my past. I've, you know, I've just put a ceiling up. There are certain things I haven't been willing to change in my life, the way I deal with people, the way I deal with my spouse, my kids. I haven't been godly. I haven't honored God. I've allowed my life to remain crippled in areas that I know that, God, you've called me to be whole. And I want to pray for you. Anyone else just before we, we pray? I know more people are standing. And don't stand if you don't feel led to. This isn't uh, for anybody but the Lord. Father, I thank you for the men and women who are standing. And, and God, we come before you just saying, oh, oh, you're good. And how we love to worship you. How we love to serve you, Lord. And God, to your question to us this morning, do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? Our answer is yes, God. Oh, God, yes, yes, a thousand times over. We want to be whole. We're a little, we're a little frightened at times about that. We don't know exactly what it means. We know it's going to mean change. Our identity will change. Our responsibilities will change. Our conduct will change. So many things need to change. But God, we're not aiming at change. We're aiming at allowing you to raise us up. It's your hand. It's your power that will bring about the change. And so, God, we're simply reaching up our hands to you and say, God, take us by the hand and heal us and make us whole, that we might be true ambassadors of Christ, even as Peter, in his crippled frailty before the cross, denied the Lord three times, but was later made whole, and now is preaching a gospel of wholeness and forgiveness of sins to those who are crippled. God, you've called us to do the same. Ambassadors of Christ, reconcilers of those that need the appeal to come back to the Lord, make us those that help others who are crippled to find new life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.